Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 79. If we are challenging a family member in this household of redemptive faith in Yeshua with a kind of duel or fight to the death, we turn around, pull out our pistol, and blow the head off of our opponent, I just don't see that this is the way Yehovah wants us to be doing things. Shalom and welcome once again to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. This is episode 79, part 15, in my series, Defining Biblical Love. So let's continue with our study where we left off on the previous program. Now on the last program, I dealt with 1 Corinthians 13, 5, and the actions of doing or manifesting the love of Jehovah as he fills us from his own source of self-generation, all the while sending out what he generates and infusing us with it if we so choose to want to receive it. Now, Jehovah's self-generating love is not something that is naked and exposed to the wisdom of this lower world. His wisdom is much greater, much more encompassing, and it is eternal, and it is divine, and it comes out of a realm that we don't really know that much about. We're learning, but this is what Scripture tells us, in Isaiah 55, 8, when Jehovah said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says Jehovah. In other words, when Jehovah tells us that he loves us, we really must not seek to try to compare his divine definition of love with our earthly definition of love. And I think this is precisely Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, when he said that love does not seek its own. That's where we left off on the last program. Now, of course, this English statement has a basis in Greek, which we also know is derived from a word in Hebrew. The word in Hebrew that gives us the Greek word for the concept in English that love does not seek its own, that word is bakash, and its working verb is levakesh. Bakash, or levakesh, is a Hebrew term that means discovery and investigation. Paul writes that for Jehovah, there is no need for him to investigate and or to seek to do what we might call discovery. And this idea of discovery is an interesting term. And if we have any attorneys listening here to the program, of course, you know what discovery is. It's used in a legal sense in today's jurisprudence, especially in America, 
And I'm also assuming it's probably in use in other countries uh, around the world as well. So this idea of discovery is at the basis for the Hebrew term bakash. And discovery really is something that Jehovah does not need to do. So we ask the question, why? It's simply because, in truth, he already knows what we are. Psalm 103, 14 through 17. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over him, and he is gone. And his place remembers him no more. And Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is the good. And what does Jehovah require of you? But to do just or justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your Elohim or with your God. That's what he requires. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul goes on to say, that divine giving love does not think evil. The Hebrew basis for this idea is found in the word choshev. And uh, for those of you that study Hebrew, that is spelled chet shin vet. Chet shin vet is choshev. So I might say in modern Hebrew, anil se lakshov alzeh. The idea is, I want to think about that. So in the Bible, the term is used for one who is using a thinking process to remember or perhaps to not remember something. In modern Hebrew, choshev is the basis for an English word that we all know too well today. That term is a computer, which is Machshev. Put another way, Machshev, a computer, is directly related to the biblical Hebrew word Choshev, to think. And a computer, a Machshev, is an electronic device for storing and processing data and information according to specific programming instructions. So when Paul says that divine giving love does not think or process evil, he is telling us that Jehovah does not have a memory hole where he keeps records of all of our failures and our sinfulness. If we are in Messiah Yeshua, in other words, if we have received a redemption through the finished work of Yeshua the Messiah— then Jehovah simply does not remember any of our failures and our sinfulness, because all of this has been connected to the finished work of Yeshua and what he accomplished for us. So I would simply say that this is love, as it is expressed in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. 
So take a look at this passage. He, referring to Jehovah, has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. I'll get to the term iniquities shortly. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, in light of this, let's go to Romans 5, 8 through 9. But Elohim demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Much more than having now been justified in or through his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. My understanding of being saved from wrath through him is that of being saved from two different aspects of judgment. One, salvation from the day of Jehovah, that is going to be at the final end of the great tribulation. That is the day that the Hebrew prophets call the day of darkness and gloom, the day of thick darkness and judgment. So we're saved from that, and we are saved from the second death, which we all understand from Genesis 2:17 as the death that comes after our physical death. And that is the second death, as it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, and Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It's that kind of idea. Now, with these passages mentioned, let me take you now to 1 John 4, 19. We love him, Jehovah, because he first loved us. Do you hear that? That's a really important idea, and it is echoed through so much of Scripture over and over again, spoken about in different ways and forms. But the general idea is still there in Scripture, that we love him or we respond to him because he is the one that first did the loving. We didn't go to him and say, oh, well, we just love you. No, not at all. Rather, we run from him. We don't want anything to do with the Creator. We're born into this world with no desire to come to the Creator and love him. He has to come to us, find us, and regenerate us. So therefore, we are responding to him by loving him on the principle that he first reached out to love us. Therefore, as Paul rightly understood it in his own day, Jehovah does not keep running evidence of our failures and spiritual hiccups because to do so, it would be double jeopardy for us. That is, getting judged twice. 
And this just simply cannot be. He doesn't judge us twice. No, he judges us once. And our judgment in the redemption goes on Yeshua. That's the Isaiah 53 prophecy. It is put onto Yeshua. He takes the judgment for us. So what happens with us? We are freed because of what Yeshua did for us. Therefore, the judgment is complete. So he's not going to take us again and say, well, now I'm going to judge you again for your sins and your rebellion. Not at all. I don't think so. Now, if I'm wrong, well, then please do correct me. But I just don't see Scripture teaching that we're going to get judged a second time after we already were judged the first time through Yeshua, the Messiah. Therefore, our trusting faith in the finished work of Yeshua, the Messiah, reckons us as just, or if you want to use the term righteous, that's okay. He reckons us as just or righteous, and this is something to speak about with boldness of heart. This is part of what is called the gospel or the good news. So let's go on, because we also learned from our previous study that divine giving love does not provoke one to a challenge as if seeking to prove a point of one's honor of intellectual prowess, or perhaps even personal honor, all of this resulting in a kind of duel or fight to the death with the one that is challenging us or the one that is being challenged. You ever watch those old Western movies or perhaps those medieval movies of England and France and the European dynasties and how two men might have a duel and a fight to the death because one dishonored another or disrespected another, particularly in a public setting, that was just not cool. (laughs) So there was a duel or a fight to the death with that challenge. Well, this is the kind of idea that I am presenting to you here to help us to understand that this is not Yehovah's way of dealing with us. And therefore, we should not be challenging one another with a duel or a fight to the death simply because they don't agree with us or we don't agree with them. That's just not the way that we should be handling things. We are not to be sparring with a sword fight or even the blast of a pistol with one another in a contest of preserving personal honor, or again, as I said, sharpening our sword against a brother or sister in the faith, a kind of spiritual sword or spiritual shotgun, so to speak, where the winner is left standing and the loser is left lying dead from the wounds inflicted by the winner of the contest. 
Yeah, make no mistake about it. This is not divine love. And I would think that you would see my point in this. This is just pure arrogance on our part when we're dealing with family members in the household of this redemptive faith in Yeshua the Messiah. And quite candidly, I think it's something that Yehovah hates, as it is referenced in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Here's what is written. These six things Yehovah hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. And I got to say that if we are challenging a family member in this household of redemptive faith in Yeshua, if we are challenging a family member in that household of faith with a kind of duel or fight to the death, you pick up your sword, I'll pick up mine, or you pick up your pistol and I pick up mine, so we turn count off a number of paces, and then in a quick move, we turn around, pull out our pistol, and blow the head off of our opponent or the one who's challenging us in this contest. Or again, as I've said previously, we take our sword and we slice and dice the one who is challenging our personal intellect or our personal understanding, or personal honor. No, I just don't see that this is the way Jehovah wants us to be doing things. Now, I know that in Judaism, in the Talmudic academies, or the yeshiva study centers, oh yeah, they get pretty loud and boisterous, and challenge one another, and the louder one gets... And the more intense one gets, the more interesting it's supposed to be. Um, I don't really see it that way. I mean, uh, I know it's done that way, but I don't necessarily agree with it. And I don't think it's really such a good practice to do. Because in my view, when we go after each other with our spiritual sword or our spiritual pistol, so to speak, that we are in fact exhibiting a proud look, and we are showing our hands that shed innocent blood. We also are allowing the wickedness of our heart to devise plans to take off the head of our opponent. Therefore, I think we are using our feet, which represent halakha or doctrine, to run swiftly into evil one to another, bearing false witness and speaking lies, or even ultimately as one who is sowing discord among brethren. So again, I just don't think it's such a good principle to follow. But then again, this is my opinion, and uh, I'm not going to judge anyone here listening to this podcast and say, well, you're a bad person because you do that kind of thing. 
I can only say that personally, I will not participate in those kinds of things. But I will say that many, many years ago, I did participate in those kinds of things. Oh, yeah. I've had people come up to me over the years and, you know, have a conversation with me. And later on, they would write me and say, you know, Avi, you were pretty arrogant there. Or people have come up to me and said, you know, you were just a a little bit over the top, a little bit too rough with that person over there in your arguing of a particular case. Yeah, I've done things like that in the past. But, you know, I'm getting older and I'm getting wiser and understanding that this is just not something that I personally want to participate in in these days of my life now. So all this being said, I want to go on now and address a a few additional principles that divine giving love is not to be understood as something that does inspections on our lives. I might just simply refer to it as nitpicking for clusters of failures that define each of us as sinners. And we say to each other, you're a sinner because you do this or that. We call each other sinners. We call each other morons. Or we say to each other, you're just an empty head or an idiot. You know, we do things like that. I mean, I've done things like that. Now, maybe you have never done anything like that. And I say congratulations, but uh, I haven't been quite so successful in all my years. I've stooped to saying those kinds of things, and I have come to regret it later on. And I think it's something that we all need to get under control. So it's these nitpicking clusters of failures that we oftentimes level one against another. So we often judge each other, and then we justify ourselves as those who are better than all those sinners who prove themselves intellectually lacking, and thus in our mind, making them lower on the spiritual scale than we are. We do this stuff because I think it's all just part of our fallen human nature So consider the story that Yeshua taught in Luke 18, 9 through 14. He, Yeshua, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were just, or if you want to use the term righteous, that's okay, that they were just and despised others. So Yeshua's parable goes on. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a parush or a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee or parush stood and prayed thus with himself, O God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. (laughs) And that tax collector, standing afar off, would not even so much 
as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, and he says, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Yeshua, this man, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house, referring to the house of the dead, as justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, at this point, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back to continue this idea and talk further about this principle of how to love. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 79. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Okay, welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and we're talking about divine biblical love on today's podcast And we're discussing this whole concept that divine giving love is never, ever to be understood as something that does personal inspections on everyone else around us in a kind of nitpicking way. You know what I mean, looking for clusters of failures in those that are around us, those kinds of clusters of failures that might define someone as a sinner. That's these nitpicking clusters of failures that we oftentimes level against one another. And to what end? I don't know. I think from the Bible's perspective, we do it because we live in a fallen human condition And none of us really ever like to be found guilty and full of shame, or perhaps to be found intellectually lacking. No, no. I think each of us like to feel important and intelligent, and we like to win our arguments and our cases one with another. But I'm suggesting that we take the more humble approach— and not challenge each other, trying to slice and dice them with a sword (laughs) just because they have a different viewpoint on a particular aspect of 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 a doctrine or an idea in Scripture. Now, of course, I am not referring to basic doctrinal tenets of the Messianic Hebraic Jewish faith. I mean, the physical death, burial, and physical resurrection of Yeshua as a miracle. Personally, I think that is non-negotiable because I think without it, we are doomed. We really are. But the whole gospel narrative about justness that Yehovah gives to us versus a justness that we seem to feel that we have to earn for ourselves to gain his love. Now, 
I think that's just non-negotiable stuff. We're not going to earn our salvation. We're not going to earn his love. It just cannot be done, period. And this is the whole issue of the parable that Yeshua teaches in Luke 18, 9 through 14, where he concludes that lesson by saying to each of us, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We all do this kind of stuff all the time where we exalt ourselves over someone else and force someone else, perhaps an opponent in a doctrinal dispute, we force them into a position of being humbled because we like to exalt ourselves and make ourselves more righteous, more just, more important, more intellectually knowledgeable. I mean, the list goes on and on. And whether we know it or not, it is not something that I think we should be exercising in our walk of faith one to another in this messianic Hebraic household of redemptive faith in Yeshua. But oftentimes, we want to think or say or even do religious actions in the name of Yehovah's love. (laughs) I think you know the drill. Let's see if you can relate to this. Well, brother, and we kind of just, you know, lower our voice and we, you know, we want to sound really holier than thou. Well, brother, or whomever, well, sister, well, fill in the blank, whoever it is you're talking to, I want to say something to you in love. You ever done that? I want to say something to you in love. Or you know that I'm just saying this to you in love, right? And we go on to just crush them to destroy them. Oh, that's something that happened in the book of Job. We're going to get to that shortly, okay? So then I ask the question, how can we know if we are in fact thinking, saying, or doing something in love? Maybe we're not showing love at all. Maybe we're not. Maybe We're just being flat-out arrogant or flat-out proud, you know, with that proud look, with feet that are running to do evil, with making somebody feel just so bad that we bring discord in the body of Messiah. Yeah, (laughs) maybe we're not showing any love at all. The one thing about what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, 5-6, is that we seem to give ourselves permission to essentially trample all over someone's personal space and or their personal boundaries by requiring that each person that we come in contact with, oh, that they submit to a review of our careful scrutiny and examination, 
involving their thinking, their words, and yes, their actions. Have you ever done anything like this before? Well, if you haven't, congratulations. But I have. I've been a master of doing this kind of stuff over many years, and I have come to hate it when I do it. Candidly, I have to admit, I'm assuming that you are really no different than I am because we all live in a fallen human condition that was passed down to us from Adam and Eve, and we inherited that human condition. Therefore, I think we all struggle with this kind of thing. So what do we do? We puff ourselves up with pride, and we say, well, listen, you know, I have done good for the body of Messiah, and I've proven myself worthy to even help others pass their divine inspection. We appoint ourselves as thought police or as local community fruit inspectors. Oh yeah, we do. Imagine appointing yourself as part of the thought police that are running around out there, or the local community of fruit inspectors. I think we have a term for it. It's called Torah terrorists. Or worse, we might even give ourselves permission to be less stringent with ourselves and more stringent with others. That was a case that Yeshua was addressing in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 2. Conversely, we might put ourselves under a more stringent kind of scrutiny and inspection of ourselves, that is, holding ourselves to a much, much higher standard than even Yehovah would hold us to, in hopes that we too will prove ourselves worthy to receive a divine passing grade for our attempted measure of saintliness, or going after and pursuing a level of super holiness in the eyes of the Almighty Eternal One. You see, it can work either way. I'm sorry, but I have to answer no. Divine love does not ever, ever work this way. At least, not the kind of love that I understand in all of Scripture. However, this kind of stuff, to gain approval for our failed holy thoughts and actions in this life, is what contemporary Judaism is built upon. I know, because I lived it day in and day out for many, many years. I know what it feels like. And actually, it seems to me that it's not just a spectacle emerging from Judaism's halls of holiness teachings. I think all religions of mankind are fundamentally flawed because they teach their followers to perform actions of holy behavior or saintly behavior in order to 
hopefully, that's the operative word here, to hopefully please their deity or the deity that they are accountable to so that he or maybe she won't come down on them like a ton of bricks or with too heavy a hand and whack that sinner into the middle of next week, so to speak. So amongst the Jewish people, observances of doing and saying good, moral, and upright things to gain a high standing of spiritual worthiness in the eyes of the Almighty, this is certainly nothing new. For Jews, we have no shortage of guilt available to us, individually and collectively. And I can even remember some of this when I was growing up in a Jewish home. Perhaps some of you have heard the idea of the Jewish mama guilt trip. Yeah, I've gone through enough of that. I know exactly what that's all about. And the same thing goes in the synagogue and in the yeshiva and among all of us Jews. We're taught to work hard and to be dedicated to the awareness of being pleasing to Hashem. Always. But I ask, how can we be pleasing to Hashem? Which is the Hebrew way of saying the name. The rabbinic answer to the question, how can we be pleasing to Hashem? The rabbinic answer is a rather complicated system of religious routines. Most of them daily routines involving Torah study, Sabbath keeping, the giving of charity, and the doing of other important special rules, regulations, and laws of what are called mitzvot in Judaism. Therefore, us Jews are taught to stringently observe the Sabbath. This is someone who is referred to as Shomer Shabbat. Also, we are taught to spend inordinate amounts of available time in community Torah study, and certainly not to be lax in our Jewish duty of the giving of charity. These concepts are part and parcel of our Jewish religious upbringing and culture, and a routine that we learn to be observant of mitzvot, or in its singular form, to be observant of a mitzvah as often as we can do one. It's that elusive thing called the mitzvah or the mitzvot, a good action or a good work, whether it is given by Hashem or by the rabbis of Judaism. Thus, it is taught that if we Jews will do our utmost and be faithful to do Hashem's mitzvot or commandments, which, as I said, includes rabbinically decreed laws and regulations as well, then we can therefore earn a passing grade in our attempt towards spirituality. And in this, we can hopefully, again, there's that operative word, we can hopefully be found worthy enough to pass a divine inspection when Jehovah 
comes around to have a look at our lives and inspect what we're doing. If we gain that all-elusive passing grade for guarding Hashem's mitzvot, or what are called commandments, then a door into the Olam Haba opens up for us. The Olam Haba is the Hebrew term for the world to come. And if we are faithful, and we are sincere, and we are repentant, and we do all the things that are required of us as Jews, then yes, we earn our right to participate in the last-day resurrection that Judaism teaches and talks about, and we get a place in the Olam Haba, or the world to come. It's guaranteed. Ah, but everyone knows that in the course of just one passing year, everyone fails to faithfully observe Hashem's mitzvot or commandments. Oh, but not to worry. Not to worry. There is a back door into acquiring that necessary passing grade that only Yehovah can give. Because as Judaism teaches, He is the only one that can give us forgiveness. So how do we earn that necessary passing grade that Yehovah can give to us? There is one way, and that is by entering through the door of what is called Yom Kippur, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or the Day of Atonements, literally, in Hebrew. Now, candidly, this is a common doctrine within the teachings and the halls of Jewish learning. Within the doctrines of other religious faiths, each one also has its own unique way of seeking to gain acceptance with their religious deity, the one that those people have to be accountable to, and the people of those other religious faiths, yes, they perform special rites of passage through a process of perhaps doing sacraments or undertaking some aspect of self-sacrifice or even ultimately accomplishing a level of self-atonement. Yes, it's true. And we might call it a self-righteousness or a self justness, okay? Regardless, there is always going to be something that a religion will require from a devotee to do, as each person is made aware and responsible to be saintly or holy, particularly to be considered morally right and good in the eyes of the teacher or perhaps even the teachers of a particular religious doctrine. Ultimately, the objective is to seek to appease a displeased religious deity of the faith of these people that follow these other man-made religious doctrines. They've got to get their deity to stop being angry at them, so they seek to appease 
appease their displeased religious deity and try to make them happy. Because generally, it's usually a deity who is simply just not happy enough with the one who is trying to be good or good enough to be worthy of something or to be worthy of a blessing beyond this life. And I got to tell you, this is the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 13, that religion, regardless of all of its rules, religion is designed to keep its devotees on the straight and narrow path of the purity of one's soul in hopes that the religious deity of that faith that one is following, regardless of whatever faith it is, that that deity will not find their devotee to that religion lacking in showing love through any of the established religious observances of that religion. Ultimately, what I'm saying to you is that man-made religion teaches that actions of love will, in fact, save a sinner because it is taught in many religions that our doings of love or actions of love will cancel out our doings or actions of bad and evil. It's kind of a scale or a weight and balance routine, kind of like what the Egyptians did, weighing the feather against the heart. That was an old Egyptian practice. So it's kind of this idea of weighing good with bad, and hopefully, (laughs) hopefully by the time we meet our end, we've got enough good to outweigh the bad. Because you don't want to have more bad than good, so you work really hard at living and showing love and doing as much as you can and earning your place in the eyes of the deity so that you don't come up short and you get punished after you meet your end and you go on. However, a problem that arises when a religious devotee is found lacking in showing love. In other words, putting on that scale more bad than good. After all, if this goes unatoned for, oi voy, as we say, the risk can be high that the deity of that religious faith will be very angry and not be so kind and merciful to you. Rather, the deity could or might, or even likely, will, through his or her anger, depending on the god or deity you serve, that that one will send a sinning religious disciple into their deserved punishment. And such a punishment might also affect an entire community, not just deal with one specific person. So, how does Paul address this kind of teaching? Well, this is where 1 Corinthians 13.6 enters the picture when Paul writes that divine giving love 
does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And Paul was right on target. And when we come back on the next podcast, we will take a look at this statement and we'll unpack it and try to understand exactly what is being said in this idea in 1 Corinthians 13.6, that divine giving love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Okay? We'll come back on the next podcast and deal with this subject and so much more. Now, if you would like some information about who I am, what we do, what I do, this is Real Israel Talk Radio, the ministry of coming home. And you can go to my website at www.cominghome.co.il. Again, cominghome.co.il. There you can purchase some materials particularly the digital download products, which are available. And I'm working on some new digital download products for you that will be coming out soon. So in the meantime, go to my site and order things and help support the work here. If you so choose, I'm not putting any pressure on you. I don't ask for donations. I don't do any of that stuff, okay? If you want to give, feel free to give. We will be back on the next podcast, Yah willing, and continue where we left off here in 1 Corinthians 13.6, that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. I am Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.